welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. And we're podcasting. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to Knock On Podcast number, I don't know. 190-something, I think. I think it's like two, somewhere between 215 and 220. It's 190-something. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've heard this voice before. I'm with my buddy Andy Stumpf, and this is this might be our first podcast we've done where we weren't at a hunt or in the process of hunting. The very first one we ever did was in your uh, office. Oh, and that's after you. we kind of worked together for a day. Yes. Other okay. than that, though, every single time. The next <laughs> one after that was in uh, Alberta. Oh, yeah. And then wherever we were hunting after that. It kept going, kept going. Right now we're in Montana. I had to come check out the town of Kalispell and many other towns around should I just tell everyone it's it's dumb? It's not that it's dumb. It's just overpopulated. The traffic is terrible. Pro- problematic. Air quality is low most days. No snow. Smog. It's like no outdoor activities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was telling you about the Montana tax when we moved here. I'm like, oh, no. We have four seasons and four activities, and I have nothing for me or the kids. <laughs> and it was not awesome on the savings account. Yeah, it's... This place is pretty cool. We're obviously being very sarcastic. Montana's awesome. Came up, uh, me and Sharon came up for a for a getaway. One of our other buddies was supposed to be here but couldn't make it. But um, we are, let's see, we chilled, we grilled, we... Took you on a little bit of a tour, showed you the lake house. Showed you, yeah, your rental property's awesome. If anyone's wanting an amazing rental property... Up in the Montana woods, Andy's is the place. Where can they find Like, where can they do that? It's on VRBO. Is there like a number or something? <sighs> there might be. It's the R&R Guest House. R&R Guest House. By Lake Mary Ronan. Three words. Yeah. Awesome place. Sharon and I booked it for... We booked a little slot. We're going to come up with Harry and chill out and enjoy the lake and all the fun stuff maybe snow maybe not snow but there'll be snow in december oh yeah i hope so there's definitely snow now we were supposed to be snowboarding right now i decided to take up snowboarding in an attempt to fully (laughs) blow out not only my shoulders but my coccyx in one winter so we did jitsu yesterday yep what'd you think of that awesome Yep. super awesome such a different environment it was way it was way more systematic than other places that I've been, which I really liked. It was the first time where things clicked for me. And then well, I haven't told you this, but like I woke up several times at night like thinking about like the frames. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> thinking about framing and I was like kind of pr- Sharon's like Quit moving in the bed, and I was like trying to get out, getting your leg over first. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was trying to like hook the leg frame. Um, no, I just really like that. It was awesome. 
And I like the way he taught it. So we were going to meet with their head instructor. She got a stomach bug. So we ended up meeting with the owner, mm-hmm. who is the vice president of... So SBG, the gym, gyms, there's three of them here in the Valley. And then there's SBGI International, which is the large parent organization. Okay. My only reference to it is, it's, I know it's not like CrossFit, but it, they're affiliated with CrossFit headquarters. So SBGI, in my understanding, is the headquarters. Like and, an official branch out of it, I would guess, or something. Yeah, so all the other SBGs, because there's there are actually some throughout the world, are affiliated to SBGI. But Travis, who owns the ones here in the Valley, is also the VP of SBGI. So okay. he's the number two guy. Right underneath Matt Thornton, who is who... Travis got his black belt underneath. Oh. Yeah, this is... I think there's so many... When you have the right teacher, there's so many similarities between... I don't know. It's cool for me because there's times where I just need to do things that are 100% not archery. Which is what that was. Yeah, and it's weird because a lot of people (laughs) I meet are trying to do archery because it's 100% away from, like, what they're doing, whether it's, you know, comedians or... You know, pro ball players, actors, whatever. They just need a break? Yeah. Yeah. They just want something that's like 180 degrees from what they do every day. And for me, I need that too. Weightlifting's always been that way, but now I think it seems like, I think the older I get, I don't know if I, I don't. I don't think it's fair to say I'm training less, but I'm just training smarter. I used to spend a lot more time to get the same results. So I, I, it was more of a break for me in the day because I was doing it a lot longer. Whereas now I've learned to like be really efficient with it. So now it's almost like that 30 or 45 minutes I have to have a cup of coffee. You know, it's almost like it's part of my daily routine, not or routine, not an R and R. Whereas, you know, at least now trying to snowboard, hopefully we can go tomorrow and doing some jujitsu is like just so opposite of those things. But in a lot of ways, the focus and the systematic discipline are the same. So I like it because that's part of what I like about my normal life, but it's different enough to where I'm not I guess getting burnt out, you know, this time of year, I'm kind of getting away from archery for little breaks. You don't get that much though, do you? Not really. Like this time of year, I train a lot. Like you've seen the school knock. I told you I'm shooting a lot. Oh, and you switch bows too, right? You're shooting your big green monster. Yeah. Which when I pulled that back the first time I was like, oh, okay. I understand (laughs) now why you can get a couple hundred reps in because I'd watch some of the numbers you'd put up, and I'd go out in my backyard. I'm like, obviously, I'm going to do one more arrow than Dudley is. <laughs> and like 100 in, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if I can hit 300 today. Yeah, yeah. it's tougher, way tougher on a 70-pound bow or even 75 pounds. I, that's why I tell people, if you really want to get into starting to winter train. Switch equipment. Yeah, find, yeah. A, find a little bit lighter bow setup um, to do that. You know, sometimes if the bow you have becomes an older model and you're kind of wanting to upgrade. Sometimes you can take that older model and just, you know, by then you can buy a set of limbs for it pretty cheap that are lighter and just have it kind of set up as more of a bow for reps. And then once it gets 
closer to summertime or whatever and you buy a new bow for the year, uh, take that new bow, shoot it at the higher poundage and, you know, spend that last month or whatever getting ready with the higher poundage. A lot of questions people are having right now are, is related to muscle soreness on my social media that I've been going through. There's people that are talking whether or not their front shoulder should be sore. Then there's also people talking about their front elbow being sore. And both of those are hmm. kind of relative to two different things. The one is um, in relation to the shoulder. You know, a lot of people that are keeping that shoulder down for the first time and they're not just collapsing it back up against their neck where they're just kind of solid. People that are having to use their scapula muscles to maintain that shoulder in a downward position, it's just a really new thing if you haven't done it. Kind of like you yesterday, yeah, crampy my, boy. Yeah, my <laughs> my my hip flexors are on fire right now. Yesterday, by hour two, we would just get into a starting position. I'd be like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I would have the, a muscle somewhere deep in my pelvis that I don't even know I've got just cringing yep. like oh no we're going to be squeezing down again it's like yep hold on but it's pretty analogous though to somebody holding that position who never has before you're not going to have a lot of uh what would it be endurance or tolerance you're going to get sore really quick I remember I was very sore when I first left your house for the first time and of course, because I'm Which a genius, you've been shooting already for a while too, but not correctly. Yeah, I, I um, when I I definitely was letting my I'm like, oh yeah, it's way easier if I just let the shoulder collapse and I can just push everything against my neck that holds it really still. Not great for accuracy. Well, you realize that when it is down and forward, how much easier pulling through oh, your shoulder back was. But I got very sore, and because I'm an idiot, I just kept shooting, and mm-hmm. I actually ended up getting really sore it deep into my shoulder joint on my draw arm. Okay. And I don't know what it was. And I, just, and I just backed off. And that was for me, like, you know what, maybe I'll shoot 30 arrows and just completely focus on shot process instead of trying to shoot 300 and worrying about how many arrows I can pull out of a target. That that And since that day, I mean, a good training day for me when I can go outside and shoot would probably be like 25 arrows. Yeah. And I feel good. If you, if you do it with purpose, then... It, it is good. Yep. You know, if you're not now, the only time it'll come to bite you is, you know, if we go out and shoot the total archery challenge and we go up and warm up for 20 arrows and hit the course and, you know, end up shooting 50 arrows, you end up getting burned out by the end. And, you know, then of course, like even last year, some of those last targets yeah. were the, like, were the toughest <laughs> angles. So when you're already a little bit fatigued, yeah. then just the wheels come off. That happens with a lot of people in tournaments. Um, so towards, that's why, towards the tail end. Yeah, yep. yeah. If if they've been doing a good job of practicing, but not practicing the numbers, but you know, say they have good practices, and you know, maybe they're shooting fifty or sixty arrows a day, but then you go to a tournament where they decide to do a double round where you're shooting double the arrows in one day. People who haven't done that, it's just you hit this point yep. where you're just like, oh no. You see that in um, rifle shooting and pistol shooting. Once they reach a point of no return, it's the uh, it's slightly true. The misconception of the military, you know, train smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. But in the early part of your military career, it's like, let's just train hard to weed out the people we don't want there. Yeah. But you have to recognize that the training value of what you're doing, at some point in the day, you got to look over at the other instructors and be like, 
we're not actually teaching anything anymore. Just to be clear, we're trying yeah. to get people to quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're still going to do this. And it actually, it builds bad habits sometimes. Yeah. But I've seen that in everything from pistol, rifle, towards the end of the day. Like you wake up in the morning and you're shooting good. And the end of the day, it's like, I can't even find my holster. I think the gun's pointed. I'm just going to smash the trigger as hard. Yeah, you got to you got to build that tolerance in there. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people. That's why I'm a big I'm a big disbeliever in some of these coaches, especially national coaches that you know, they're in a way they're tr- they're employed and they're there every single day. But I remember going over to England and a coach that was there was working with one of my junior archers and they just had this calendar that had how many numbers of arrows they need to shoot every single day of the month. And the quota was just kind of continually high. And in the end it was like, because he wanted you to shoot 8,000 arrows that month or whatever it was. And I'm like, well, what, what happens if you're sore? And they're like, we still have to turn in our numbers. And I'm like, well, what if you're developing a bad technique? Or they're like, we still have to do it. So I just felt like, man, without a coach being there to kind of police that and Mm -hmm. recognize, okay, whatever they're doing right now is just, it's just like solidifying a poor habit. Because, you know, if, if you have a breakdown, you almost can start a bad habit for the first time and then if you do it long enough that day you've like put the onslaught of yeah it's, you have to break your way out of it yeah, later on yep i used to find it's funny c- coaching my first experience with it was owning a crossfit gym and I, I found it to be very hard because everybody comes for different reasons and i would do the programming kind of this, i would do like a week at a time which left not a lot of room for deviation for the individual because you can tell and I would see this time and time again like listen this is a max effort day and you could tell the person is tired and they're like okay and they'll give you 70% yep. and the next day it's like listen this is a lower intensity day but you could tell they had like the espresso right before they came in <laughs> and they're gonna and, like they don't listen because yeah. they're kind of and I needed to I had to figure out how to bridge that gap for each individual person because otherwise they're going by how they feel that day and then the next yeah. they don't know that the next day you might be getting ready to pound them and you didn't yeah. want them you know, blown out. You just wanted them more like stretched out and and, yeah. and ready. It took a while though. It was coaching was interesting. I found it to be twenty percent knowledge, eighty percent therapist. You go and you structure how you want it to be, but then eighty percent of the time, people are just talking. I had a bad day. I'm like, awesome. Pick up that barbell because I don't want to hear about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it took me a while to figure out that ability to connect with people because otherwise. I wanted everybody to show up on Friday ready to go really hard. And if I didn't have the ability, like actually I'd say it was based off of trust. They trusted me when I said, hey, don't go hard today, that yeah. there is a reason for it. And then they would all show up on Friday. I'm like, listen, today, leave it in fifth gear all day long. <laughs> and then they would, and they'd come back Monday. But without that, I mean, you'd have people finishing a workout 30 minutes after the, the first person that finished, which is not enjoyable for anybody. <laughs> There's nothing worse than having people like, come on, you can do it. <laughs> I used to, so I was around the games athletes all the yeah. times. And for people who aren't familiar with the CrossFit games, it's, they're specimens. The amount of work, I, people, what I think don't realize how much work they put in. And when I was working for a CrossFit, I was always around them. 
and all they want to do is work out. And let's just say I'm not a CrossFit Games athlete, yeah. and I'm like, all right, fine, I'd go work out, and half the time would be large group settings, and they're writing the workout on the board. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, I can do that. And then right next to that, they would write warm up. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> and then they would write another workout, and I'm like, well, if I pace my way through the first one, I'm gonna be okay. And they'd write workout number one. I'm like, come on. <laughs> And then it was workout number two, then workout number three, and then like mobility. I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking, how low can I make the weights before somebody notices and starts making fun of me? But there's no worse feeling than being the last person professionally exercising and just having a bunch of fit people like clap. I would just stop and be like, shut up. Don't cheer me on. Negative reinforcement only, and don't look at me. <laughs> it was so bad. Do you think those athletes would be better if they tapered that back? I think it would depend on the end state that they are trying to use their fitness for. So when I first started working for CrossFit back in 2006, I started off just on the seminar side of the house, delivering the conceptual foundation of the program. Mm -hmm. And the definition of fitness that was used, uh, they always used like a, a big peanut hopper or this is actually how they selected the workouts at the first CrossFit Games. They put a bunch of exercises on ping pong balls and put yeah. them in like a peanut roaster yeah. and started pulling stuff out. And you'll always have your specialists, um, like a triathlete, is going to win and run swim bike or whatever order they do it in. Yep. The distance runner is going to win. The power lifter is always going to win if you do that one particular thing. But that's specialization versus generalization, which is what CrossFit is supposed to be, broad, general, and inclusive, to use their words. So their definition of fitness was take 10 workouts, and they all come out of the hopper. And one mm -hmm. of them can be, you. if you're a specialist, you get to, one of those can be your thing, because you're going to win. And you get a one on that, because you came in first. But for the power lifter, the next thing that might come out is going to be 8 by 800 meter repeats. You're not getting a one on that, right? You might get <laughs> yeah. 100 if there's 100 people. And so that continues for 10 or exponentially as far out as people want to go. And then the person with the highest average is the fittest. That was the definition of fitness was work capacity across yeah. broad time and modal domains, again, to use their words. The highest or lowest? Uh, you would want the lowest. Sorry. Yeah. The, no, the closest you could get to one, the number of times. So the lowest score out of 100 athletes. So 10 would be... 10 times 1 would, would be, be you crushed everything, yeah. which a CrossFit athlete is not going to be able to do that. You'll lose yeah. a marathon, you'll lose powerlifting, but you're probably going to get top 25th percentile. And if you can do that across 10, I bet you the odds are you're going to have the lowest score. Yeah. So that was really, when I started working for the company, it was about developing work capacity. And that capacity would be able to help you at a construction job or a freaking backcountry bow hunt. Mm -hmm. They'd have to modify it a little bit because the workouts were much shorter than the days we were putting in. Yeah. But they could just do some more time underfoot on terrain. And then when the games became and got created, which was a test of that theory, the, the games started because they realized they could actually make a practical test of that theory, which is why the athletes don't know the workouts when they show up. They just know how long they're yeah. going to be there. But there's also, there's boundaries inside of that. You know, it's going to be in a stadium, you know, it's at near the beach. So there's probably going to be a swim. So it's not that it's artificial, but you can start to see a little bit of boundaries coming yeah. in. And this is me speaking, not CrossFit headquarters. I'm only speaking for myself, but they started doing three, four, five workouts in a day. So the CrossFit Games athletes started doing four, five, six, seven, eight workouts in a day. 
And traditional CrossFit program would be three days on, one day off. I don't know of any CrossFit Games athlete that follows the CrossFit game or the CrossFit.com programming. So there was a divergence between CrossFit and then CrossFit Games. And the yeah. athletes went headlong into the CrossFit Games because yeah. that's what they competed in. Yeah. As far as, in my opinion, looking at how, I mean, first off, they're in amazing shape. They're all, they look like they're freaking chiseled out of marble. But I also watched some of the younger athletes choosing not to do awesome life experiences because it would get in, you know, like I'm not, I can't go on this two week vacation because that would mess up my strength protocol. So yeah. they're, they're sacrificing a little bit of quality of life. And I think over the long term, they would be less competitive at the games if they did less, but probably have a higher quality of life and much more capable in other things if they toned it back a little bit. Yeah. But it's their sport, and then some of them are making a lot of money, so I don't think they have a choice. But it's funny to me how many people confuse CrossFit programming with CrossFit Games programming because it's very different, like completely different. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that Josh would do for a full day's workout, it's like, man, no, no, like, <laughs> I've got time. I can make my own schedule through the day, but yeah. I don't have time for that kind of a schedule. It's just I, not and I wouldn't happen. be able to move the next day. Yeah. Like, it'd be just... See, when I've talked to uh, former Mr. Olympias, they've, they're, at least the ones I talked to, are really adamant about the fact that they feel like they might have trained harder than they needed to. And like once you get a little bit older and you start to train a little bit more responsibly, it seems like you can easily wonder would you have actually been better off competing without being overtrained? I and I so. know it's true with archery, like a hundred percent. Now I look back at how many, you know, I, I, well, I look at some of these athletes that I work with because they're in a position where they're shooting crazy amount of numbers, way higher than I ever did, but they're not having any result. And then the hardest thing for those people is to convince them that they don't have to train that much. I mean, it's like, it's almost like you need to hypnotize them to get them out of there because they immediately feel like they're at a disadvantage as soon as they taper back. You know, it's really hard to build that confidence back in. Because they think that everybody else is doing more. Yeah. Cause they're like, I'm training, you know, I didn't do that great before and now I'm doing less than I did before. And, you know, and there's times where I've just seen people where it's like, this isn't going to work because they do not believe like, even though they're doing better, when they get there, it's like they're lacking the confidence of, of preparation. Um, whereas being from the outside looking in, it's like you have exactly the preparation you needed, but you, you don't have over the amount, which is what was preventing you from being your best before as you were showing up here overtrained, you know, and I've, I've had tons of times where I'm overtrained and oh, yeah. mentally can't focus, you know, just, like so bored at aiming at the same target, same bored of being in the same town. You know, you get, that's what gets really hard. Early in my career, I, I chose to shoot every tournament I could. And then, then I, the longer I was in, the more I started to be like, okay, I'm going to pick specific events. One that suit like my assets because courses that had a little bit more vigorous terrain, 
would they suited me your daddy um, long legs yeah yeah just you know being able to get to the target with a lower heart rate than the next guy and then also in areas where the wind was less because my you know i shoot a pretty long projectile i'm a, a larger frame than some guys standing there so you know i struggle in the wind so even when you the, say wind though what, what velocity are we talking about i think anything 15 and higher is is starts to become problematic and then you know if you look at some of the ballistic characteristics between people that are able to shoot like 26 27 inch arrows versus people that are shooting 29 29 and a half 30 inch arrows what you have to recognize with drift starts to really multiply and that gets it just gets really hard with archery especially when the wind is variable because you're like Instead of thinking at max I need to aim four inches off, well, technically you could aim, you know, nine, ten line. And if your shots are breaking somewhere close to that, you can hang tens. Yeah. Whereas if you're thinking, okay, I've got 10 to 11 inches of drift, well, with variation, you know, if every two mile an hour wind is equivalent to one scoring ring, well, now it just really starts to become probably luck more than skill. You know, the skill of understanding what's going on, but then in variable winds, just things happen so fast when your shot's breaking on a surprise. There's yeah. just times where it's just not going to, the cards just don't fall where you, where you want them to. You and know? you know immediately, like, nope, that ain't, that's not going to be where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Everything you described, though, is uh, applicable to long range rifle what you just said so that and that's the discussion when it comes to ballistics do i want a lighter round that is hauling ass or a heavier round that is slightly slower because it all depends on how much time you're spending into the wind how much the wind can it's the exact same stuff yeah that's why the long range uh marksmanship stuff will make so much sense to you yeah how do they um are there different variables when it comes to the actual ballistic tip that you Cause like with archery, like say I was restricted to a four millimeter diameter arrow, mm-hmm. I would right away say, I'm going to take, I'm going to, if the diameters are all the same, I'm going to take the heavier weight. I'm going to take the, the slower, heavier. Um, well, there's way less variation when it comes to the ballistic tips on, on round, rifle rounds. Uh, like there, I've just seen so many more options for arrowheads and yeah. I'm sure they all fly different. Most bullets, I mean, it's either going to be a hollow point or a solid, or they might have a little bit of plastic up front. What I would say is the ballistic difference between those, 99.99999% of shooters are not good enough shooters to notice that ballistic difference. Yeah. They might talk about it. It's the same thing as people saying, oh, I have a quarter minute of angle gun, which means, you know, at, at 100 yards, you can hit a target over and over again that's a quarter of an inch. At 1,000 yards... You're saying that you can just keep lobbing rounds in in a 2.5 inch surface. No, <laughs> I mean some people can, but the vast majority of people have weapons that are more accurate than they are able to shoot as a human being, being able to control their heart rate, their sight alignment, making it consistent, the parallax, and then this uh, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, which then becomes even a worse habit. Like that really starts to <laughs> cause major problems. 
job security for me, but major problems for the archer. Yeah. In the SEAL community, when you got to the point where you started to recognize those breakdowns, I'm sure you, I mean, you have to do something that's oriented to training, mm-hmm. but would you, what, what would you gravitate towards? Cause like for me, when I get to that point, if I knew I needed to keep my head in archery, so it was part of my daily thing, I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to just like quit and walk away from it. But if I was overly sore or mm-hmm. if mentally, it's just like, I'm just feel like I'm dragging myself out the door to do this. Those are days where it's like, you know what, I'm going to get that new string on my bow or I'm going to go through equipment rundowns. I'm just going to rebuild. I'm going to you know, go ahead and gut every arrow, do a full rebuild, get everything, you know, just work on having all my match grade ballistics ready for the next event. Um, or sometimes I'd work on my backup bow. Like I always had a one, two, and three. Yeah. So I would normally work on three until it became better than than one or two, and then the rotation would happen. So I would kind of fart around with stuff like that, you know, like, hey, maybe on this this number three bow, maybe I want to try this arrow out, or someone sent that new vein, now's the time to maybe give that a whirl and see how it how it runs. I mean, would you guys do similar things, find something to where mentally you're active, or did you just always want to push through that? Well, sometimes you didn't have a choice. Because of the schedule. So at a conventional team, you live on a 24-month block. So you're going to get two to four months at the very uh, the end of a 24-month block. An entire team basically vaporizes, and they rebuild themselves. So you get a new commanding officer, a new XO, a new CMC. All the leadership positions shift. A lot of the enlisted personnel will take a step up in their leadership role. They can stay at a command for a good amount of time if they want to. But then you have to restart all of your training for each and every block that we're required to be able to do. So when we're out there and it's and you're going to go on the range for two weeks, you're going to push through for that two weeks because that's the only two-week shooting block because mm-hmm. the next block is two weeks of diving. Okay. And there's no chance when you're diving to go pick up your gun and when you've got your gun in your hand, you're not going to go mess around with a dragger. But a, most of the stuff, at least every day, you're probably shooting a standard of some kind, whether it's... You know, back to the target. The El Prez is a great drill. Three silhouettes up behind you, back to the target, hands in the air. The shot timer goes off. Turn, unholster your weapon, two rounds in each one, reload, two rounds in each one. That's your time. And there's standards for all that. Or coming out of your holster and engaging uh, uh, index card, I think is like five or seven yards in sub 1.5 seconds. Stuff that's never going to actually happen in real life, but Mm -hmm. it's good for the drills. And then there's rifle drills. And then there's stress courses. So you're doing all those things, and if you see a deficiency, one of the cool things when it comes to ballistic stuff uh, like ammunition Mm -hmm. is, and I don't know how you would do this on a bow, if you see somebody struggling and you're curious as to what's causing it, you can throw in dummy rounds to see what it, and most of the time, almost always, it's anticipation. They're sitting there and they're just driving their sights low into the left because they're anticipating the recoil. So you can throw that in there, and then that identifies something that you could go work on. And we do actually, the teams, people think it's just, you know, everybody's functioning in fifth gear and ultra high performers, and it's a bell curve just like anything else. There are yeah. people who are at the apex of the bell curve, and then there's both sides of it. And you yeah. and you have to be able to, and in the best team in the world ever, there's a dude who sucks. Yeah. Because compared to the best guy on the team, he's in the bottom 10%. And you got to figure out a way to pull that guy up with you, so... 
the range drills, I mean, there's always an opportunity to identify the failure and we would take the time to remediate the people who are struggling, but they still have to meet that standard because at the end of that block, you might put the rifles up for a month, yeah. especially in that training block because it's going to go, hey guys, two weeks of diving, two weeks of jumping, and then we're going to go out to the desert. But when we get back into the desert, we start back with very simple stuff again, like we'll graduate our way to the more complex stuff. And at the end of the day, none of it's super complex, but we always start at those foundations. Did they feel like it was better to do it in those big blocks like that rather than make it like smaller blocks? But you know what I mean? To where you did like two and a half hours of diving, two and a half hours of range, two and a half hours. Well, the problem is, is there was nowhere to do that. So we would dive in the San Diego Bay. But if we were going to go, when I was on the West Coast, we dive in the San Diego Bay. I mean, you got to go, you go and you get issued diving gear. So you personally go put your stuff together. Then you have to do an inspection on it. Then somebody has to come inspect it. Then you have to plan the dive. Then you got to go brief the dive. Then you got to do the dive. Then you got to get the gear, (laughs) get it ready for the next day. And most of that's happening at nighttime because that's when you would be doing that. And it takes your entire day. And then you're crushed because you're doing a three and a half to four hour underwater evolution where you're just hoping you can find a revolver so you can put it in your mouth and the evolution. <laughs> but it there was and at the end of that two weeks, you'd be a B for currency. And then it's like, hey, we gotta go shoot. And you get to a B or like a A minus shooting. And then you're now a C in diving. But then we'd have to go jumping. Yeah. And it's just there was no way to do all of those things. It's a constant chasing of currency in that community. Well, yeah, I mean, even seeing some of the guys out at the drop zone out there, there's no way they're going to get from there out to the drop zone, nope. get all their crap out, get all their crap. So they almost, is that why they were there for like X amount of time, just getting as many jumps? I mean, because they were just bombing out, bombing out, and bombing out, you bombing were, out. There was a couple groups there, and one of the groups was literally dedicated towards, um, please raise your hand if you haven't jumped in two years, because we have to start <laughs> over again. Yeah. And then the other one was, okay, you've jumped in the last six months. We'll put you in a larger group, but still one instructor that's paying attention because you're just flirting with and fighting that competency and currency. Then there's the people who pursue it on their own in the weekends. They're fine. They usually are the ones who end up becoming the trainers. But again, that's one. That's an insertion method. That's, yeah. that's not even our job. That's the school bus to get you to your job. It's like this, an, and then everybody focuses on it. It's this ancillary skill set that in real life, it's funny. You look at this when you plan it on a mission you start to realize that the most dangerous thing you may end up doing is jumping out of that airplane way more dangerous than what you might be expected to do on target, which is why it never gets used. Yeah. Because the, the military commanders are like, no, that's too high risk, too high risk, too low value. Get out of here with that. But we still spend weeks training. Yeah. And then, you know, we got to go do land navigation. Then you gotta go do cold uh, cold weather. Then you gotta go to the desert. Oh, that's right. We need to know how to drive vehicles. Oh, we gotta learn how to use and load helicopters. Oh, Jocko sent a uh, set up no win scenarios in the mountain town. That's fun. Let's go do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it it never ends. Oh, we get oh we forgot how to clear rooms. Shit. Okay, we need to go ahead and do that. Oh, we have five people working with us in this element. Uh, this is their actual first SEAL platoon, so they know nothing. And then you have to factor that in as well. They have the baseline knowledge, but no practical understanding of how to apply it. Yeah. So everything we're talking about, skill level from 15 years in to 15 days in the yeah. SEAL teams. 
Well, and I think that's what a lot of the coaches go through on the national teams is they're trying to deal with the fact that they have a number one contender, but they also are trying to to fill all the gaps behind there. So maybe what's the easiest thing to to get that out? But I, I think with with a super high level finesse sport, even even with CrossFit, I think you really have to start to be able to customize training and recognize and really start to recognize your body because like you said you guys were just trying to get to that that b plus a minus knowing that in a month's time if you were to get tested on that again it would already be back to a c and they and they would of course do that to us and you'd sit there in a scenario and you scratch your head you're like does anybody remember how to do this (laughs) (laughs) yep whereas a competitor you have to I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a contender, you need to be at an A level, not an A minus. Fortunately, though, I think archery is closer to the single modality. Like it's, you know what I mean. You're focusing, like you said, you had your bows. The courses might change, but every day, you know, you had to step into that box and shoot. Mm-hmm. For for us, it was just different. I would. I w- is there any way to simulate a dummy round for a bow? I I've thought about it because yeah, they've had releases to where when you push your thumb on the button. It just triggers like a a randomized it it'll go off anywhere from one to six seconds and sometimes it will not even go off and yeah the reason they quit making them is because people were just <laughs> letting go of them and launching them <laughs> launching them through because they'd be like one two three four five ah. <laughs> yeah it it'd probably freak people out more than I think if people were training for the right intentions and had the right mentality, they'd be like, okay, you got me. I get it. I need to, and they would start talking to themselves consciously, like do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And think about things that were totally opposite of what they know they shouldn't do. Whereas another bigger percentage of people would be sitting there saying, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't. And then, then you're going to do don't it. Don't suck. Don't. <laughs> yeah. The surprise break, man, it kills me. It doesn't kill me. It surprises me how many people, just the reaction. Like it even happened when we were in Texas with like Evan and Matt. Mm-hmm. The it, And it's so foundational. And that's the beauty of those dummy rounds. The ability to dry fire a gun is, I mean, I've probably dry fired a gun three quarters of a million times. Oh, my gosh. Well, when we'd go to shooting schools, sometimes the first two days, come from a holster, present, click, go back. Come from a holster. And, and I know guys I know guys who have had a five-pound weight because they want to do drop a quarter of a second off their time who would just take a five-pound weight, and at nighttime they would put a dot on a wall and just sit there and practice that movement and just dry fire and dry fire and dry fire. And it just, it sucks that you can't dry fire a bow without severe consequences <laughs> because, and that's why I was asking about those. They make air, they used to make an air bow. I still have one. That's, I've seen it actually. Yeah. That's what I trained Sharon and Harry on. So all they're doing is drawing back and going through their shop, but they're not having the whole sensation of, of that bow, you know, of av- actually having to have a place to shoot or even having to worry about, you know, all those minor details, you know, not even to not have a sight on the bow, mm-hmm. not worrying about whether or not the arrow's on the rest, you know, just being able to raise back, draw, get to learn the wall, let off the safety and pull through. And when I first started them, there was no peep sight, no front sight. It was 
which is actually the better way to do it because then you're just saying look at your feet grab the bow draw back find your anchor position put the tip of your nose on the string let off the safety and pull through so i've kind of eliminated <clears throat> the last two steps of the shot sequence and it like now i don't ever see them trying to pull the peep back to their eye like they to them the ingrainment is draw back anchor first get the tip of your nose of the string and then yep. slightly adjust your head at that point to where you're making sure you have front sight rear sight alignment and i think their accuracy is just so much better that way you know that and i don't know how many times now in the last two years just traveling around and watching you teach and you see people when they have that moment where it goes off properly they're like oh mm-hmm and the difference between their next few shots between or like when we were in San Diego at uh at Fromm's place, there were some people there who were they were crushing whatever release they had and just now and they wanted yeah. it to go off. And the difference between their well, two things. One, I think it's pretty damn hilarious for me to watch how nervous people get to shoot in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> To literally see the wheels start to come off, very uh, Tosh-esque, if you will, when it comes to the sewing machine. Yeah, sewing machine leg. But after they, just watching a few arrows before with their technique, they have that moment, and you visibly can see it on their face where they go, oh, and their eyes get wide, and then the few arrows after that, I mean, it's un- and it's, the, it's largely, I think, the surprise break or the surprise release, which yep. people, doesn't mean the bow surprises you when it goes off. It means you're pulling through and naturally allowing it to goes off when you meet the tension. Because I've had some people like, how do you how do you always get surprised when a gun goes off? I mean, you didn't know it was going to go off? I'm like, no, no, no. I want it to go off. Yeah. I'm just not saying right now. I'm yeah. applying pressure until it meets the criteria for the triggering device. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I, w- I really wonder, um, and I asked this because last, well, let's see, a month ago, you and another friend of ours, we were out in Texas messing around. You got a new gun. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I'd ever shot like a long range rifle. So you gave me some pointers and naturally right away, I was like, I this would be fun to do, you know. So I ended up ordering a rifle, got a rifle in and our buddy Wes built it mm-hmm. for me. Uh, Rogue Tactical. It's the name. He's out of Houston. Uh, does like real custom specialized rifles. He's real nutty about all the information. Him and his partner, Tony. Uh, partner meaning him and both of them run the store. It could mean both. I'm not it sure. It could. Who knows? <laughs> it's um, 2019, West. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he hooked me up with his recommendations was a, a Ruger 6.5 Creedmoor. And then I forget the power, but. I think it's up to like 25x. It's a Night Force scope. It's a really nice scope of variable power. Yep. Yep. And then um, I don't know the name of the bipod manufacturer, but it was a really good one. Super well made. Like yep. Really well made. And then um, a rangefinder, which takes all of your information on your ballistics. We shot like 12, 12 rounds through the gun, got the ballistic average, put that into this rangefinder, and then also like. I don't know what other information we put on, but uh, more or less. You're going to put in barrel length. It's going to ask you. So you could shoot a 6.5 Creedmoor round, and if you go into the store, you're going to see it. You'll be like, I don't know the exact. uh, I'm more familiar with 300 Win Mag, but they'll say, 
195 grain, mm-hmm. 180 grain. Like, and so the yeah. computer has to know that too because that has to do with ballistic drop, same as well, just how the heavy speed. your field point is. Correct. Yeah. So if you chrono it at us, and for people who are going to go down this route, my recommendation is chrono your gun with the rounds you're going to shoot. Yeah, you'd have to. Most people, some people don't. I shouldn't say most, but some people don't because there's match grade ammo for people who shoot uh, competitions, and then there's hunting ammo, mm-hmm. and they're not going to fly the same. They're not going to yeah. chrono the same. And if you're relying on your ballistic rangefinder and you set it up with your match grade ammo, and now you're in a hunting situation, you might be off. And depending on the distance, you might be off enough where it's the difference between finding an animal or not. Yeah, or vice versa. A lot of people shoot crappy ammo to just to shoot it's cheaper. numbers. Yes. But uh, no, we got everything put in. Uh, you gave me some lessons on the technique of shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing that, whereas Wes was giving me the lessons on, you know, how he built the gun, why he built it that way, you know, what made it, how, how to work everything. And then, so I just focused on that. And for me, the trigger of a gun is so freaking easy. Yeah. I mean, that to me, shooting that gun is easier to me than shooting a bow. You know, I don't know if it's fair to... When that many things can be done to where they're almost, it's almost like a manual. If you know, I that that setup is better than I can set up a person's bow to take away homework. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there's a lot more moving parts to a person and a bow in archery form versus in, in a fully prone position. So that's what I was going to say. You will always find shooting, especially prone, to be easier because the biggest difference, even though the f- theory is like, you know, uh, instead of, you know, coming back to your anchor point, that's your cheek well on the rifle, but largely yeah. the same thing. It has to be in the same spot so you're lining up your sights. But everything you're doing under a bow is under pressure yeah. and tension. Oh, yeah. Whereas when you're laying behind the sights of a rifle, you should be able to, and I do this, I'll survey myself from my toes to my fingertips, and I don't want to feel any tension whatsoever. It should be the exact opposite. Yep. And if you're just laying there, yeah, you should be able to line your sights up because it's you're still working through a lot of stuff, but not on a device that's trying to collapse itself while you're standing there trying not to look like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when I started shooting... I could be wrong, but I immediately had confidence that to me, since 80% of the homework's done and really all I need to do is side alignment and just naturally be patient on this trigger and let the site do what it wants to. Yep. So for me, movement in that site is so much less than I've ever seen in my life yep. to where it's like, I, dude, I'll be here all day. If my archery site looked this steady, I, w- I don't even know if I'd move the trigger. I'd be like, I'm just going to watch this. Yeah, show. I'm going to watch this <laughs> for a while. So that's kind of my mentality. And then just my ability to slowly ap- apply pressure on that trigger without having any sense of like, I need it to go right now. Yep. Um, I almost feel like if someone was a, a master at archery, would they have would they actually make a better rifleman than if you have a master at rifleman that would change over to archery? Uh, obviously, just my personal opinion, I would say the master archer will pick up rifle shooting easier than the rifle shooter will pick up the archery. And it's because of the tension. Yeah. It's... Um, you know, 
I don't think people who obviously most people who listen to this podcast are probably archers. For people who are not archers, I don't think they realize how much your sights move. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the hardest things, and the reason why people anticipate with bullets, is they see the perfect sight alignment and they go now, which yeah. is I'm sure the same thing that happens mm-hmm. on a bow. But they smash it and they smash it and they smash it. If you can, if you come from a mastery of archery where you know it's going to move, yeah, like you said, you got behind the rifle, like oh, this is nothing. And even if it is moving, it doesn't matter because that's not my priority. My priority well, is to slowly and smoothly pull through the trigger. That day when we were shooting your your gun, mm-hmm. I mean, it had to have been 30, 40 mile an hour winds. Yep. I'd give it about a half value. <laughs> yeah. Mean, it was ripping. And there was certainly some movement in yep. my thing, but were we shooting 700 or 800? I put three rounds through that thing. It was 335, like right at 500, and then 730 yards for okay. the third one. So. When we were aiming at seven, you're like, just trust that movement. I'm sitting there thinking, dude, my crosshairs are never leaving that silhouette plate. Like to me, yeah. And you're like, just just totally embrace that. And I'm yeah. thinking, this looks glorious. Well, comparatively, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you came from an environment where this the movement was so much worse, so then imagine if you'd only shot rifle. And you pick up a bow, and you, but you understand you need to pull through, and you're sitting here like, oh, my God, I can't control this figure eight. I'm on, I'm off, I'm on, I'm off. It would yep. be way harder. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be a good technique if someone really wanted to build one of the best, like, rifle marksmen around. It's almost like you could incorporate really teaching people archery the correct way as part of their training to embrace the float and just say this, we're working on archery because – if you can master archery, you can master the rifle. And what's going to do that is when you start to trust this float, and if you can mm-hmm. trust it at this magnification, then you're going to have no problem once you transition back behind your gun. You can screw yourself up, though, like with your scope. If you like have a 200-yarder and you're like, oh, yeah, let me just dial this thing in, and you're on like 50 power, then your scope's going to move around a bit because <laughs> you'll see people who do that. I'm like, hey, man. This is a 70-yard shot. Back it off from the 30 power. And they back. Oh, my God, that's way better. Because <laughs> then it's like bouncing all over the place because you're looking at individual hairs. So, like, yeah. okay. Let's, so, it's, a, it's yep. a give and take. you got to understand the tool. It's the same with archery, too, because um, on my indoor bow, normally I'll shoot the most magnification possible. Not possible, but that I can possibly manage in indoor because there's no wind yeah there's no variables and it's also short range you know it's 18 meters so there's been times where i've shot up to a seven power lens even an eight power and Um, 18 meters damn yeah yeah and but i mean you're i'm literally looking within the 10 ring yeah you know so if you get in like a pressure situation where you're all sitting in a ranking round and you know you let your adrenaline get going you start, start looking re- at the six ring <laughs> yeah you start to realize like <laughs> oh damn my wheels are coming off right now yep. yeah i have a sewing machine front sight is what what that is oh, tosh love you buddy <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome what where are we at 50 oh that's about perfect um anything you want to talk about I wish we could talk about some boarding, but the Arctic conditions, we don't have a debrief yet. Well, we need yet. to board, and then you, Round can two. Clear, you can do cleared hot. 
It's the surprise element. <laughs> because the element I might surprise. end up clearing hot right into a tree somewhere. Well, after you powder both your wrists, it'll be good. We can sit down and talk about it. There's sitting there like <laughs> super high. Ch- like <laughs> it's the only thing I wanted to buy yesterday. I'm like, do you make any gloves with wrist or thumb protectors in there? Because for those of you who don't know, when I was young, I kind of grew up working at a little ski resort and flipping burgers so that I could have ski passes because I I skied. Um, and really liked competitive moguls. And one time we had a lot of ice and I, I tried to do a double off this one mogul. And when I hit the second one, it was so hard. I mean, it was like landing on a 400 pound ice cube and I just, my bindings just ejected and I went (laughs) forward at about, I don't know, 30 mile an hour to the mogul in front of me. And I put my hands out to like brace my face but it was one of those blizzardy days where you can't make out like definition of the snow. So for some reason, my thumbs were like not close enough. So just my thumbs hit the top of the mogul on both sides and just detonated both of my thumbs right back to my wrists. So both of my thumbs have been broken straight back. So that's my only thing I'm worried about on snowboarding is busting another thumb off. Which we're just gonna get you on the magic carpet ride. It's still got consequences, but they're shallower. What is it? it it's like this little. Uh, what are those things at the airport that people stand on because they don't want to walk? Yeah, the conveyor belt. Yeah, it's like that, but it goes uphill. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a very shallow gradient down, and we'll we'll start there. Okay, so we're gonna start on the bunny. The bunny hill. This is a step below the bunny hill. This is the magic carpet ride. <laughs> okay. I'll do that. That'll be perfect. And then we'll come back for your podcast. Um, this week for School of Knock, I think we're into week 10 is what I believe. Uh, this week we are going to be talking about, funny enough, we're going to be talking about the front elbow position and how to shoot soft. Um, Lock ta- it out, people. <laughs> Fully hyperextend that thing until... Well, it does a really good uh, coloration to the inside of your arm. Yeah, yeah. You not only rip half your skin off, but you start to <laughs> elongate your tendons. You're going to develop tennis elbow, and then you also can start to start to do shoulder problems, or we talk about people that bend the elbow too much and put too much pressure on the tricep, and essentially your your shoulder, as you bend the front arm, your shoulder comes higher in the socket and it pushes back and it'll cause an impingement in your shoulder. So I talk about the front elbow position and this whole week we're going to be working on keeping the front elbow soft. And I give you a visualization of where I want your front elbow pointing in relation to whether if you're look if you're imagining looking at a clock and where I want that elbow position being to help you not only keep it soft, but to keep your your bow grip correct and give yourself string clearance. So that's what we're going to do. Knock on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com. <laughs>